brought to you by Penguin. I do feel really worried about how binary things have become because we cannot learn and we cannot progress if we don't allow people to make mistakes. Hello and welcome to the Weekly Penguin podcast. Now, this is the place where we lift the lid on the creative process with guests who choose a handful of objects that have inspired them. I'm Nihal Arthanayaka, and as per the times we live in, I am, of course, from home, not in some glitzy studio. So please forgive any glitches in sound or any noises going off in the background as two kids, a dog, and probably a hoover might just interfere with what we're doing. My guest today is a journalist who has written articles for Vogue, GQ, The Telegraph, and was a contributing editor at Elle. She's also the co-presenter of the High Low podcast with Dolly Alderton, which reached number one in the iTunes charts. Now, her debut book, How Do We Know We Are Doing It Right, has just come out. It's a collection of essays which question the perceived wisdom of modern life and asks whether anybody really knows what they're talking about. Today, she talks to me down the line from northwest London. It's Pandora Sykes. Hi, Pandora. Hi, Nahal. Firstly, the thing that, uh, well, a number of things that impressed me about this process, but the sheer amount of reading that you have done to create this book, is this reading that you did in order for this book, or is this you digging into the archives of your own mind of the things you've read over the years? It's a bit of both. I read a lot of non-fiction and fiction, but particularly non-fiction in recent years anyway. And then when I started writing the book, I sort of turbo researched and I was just in the British Library heavily pregnant with piles of books around me and you can't take water into like the reading rooms and I was very very thirsty and very very pregnant so I was going outside with these little thimbles of water and I could just see the security guards were just like what is this woman doing as I was sort of manically coming back and forth between piles of books and well waddling back and forth piles of books and water. But also remembering my wife's two pregnancies the pressure pregnancy puts on your bladder means you must have been kind of equal time in the bathroom yeah. Getting water <laughs> surrounded by books. <laughs> it was, yeah, so I was, I'd, I'd combine hydration and what's the opposite of expulsion? I mean, this, is, this has gone downhill very quickly, but I would combine both activities. And of course, I was always hungry as well, and you can't take food in. And I must confess, I did slip sweets into my socks a few times because I was like, this is getting ridiculous the amount of times I'm having to go all the way down to my locker to get food. <laughs> so yeah, it did get a bit, it did get a bit mental. And I think the thing is, is when you're writing about contemporary issues, like that research never stops. So even just today, I was reading something from yesterday's Observer magazine, uh, you know, a Yale psychologist who's done this like best-selling course on happiness like a quarter of a million people have downloaded it worldwide and it's the highest subscribed course amongst students at Yale and I was like damn I wish I'd known that when I was writing about happiness and work so it kind of you know it never ends it could have really gone on forever. You found some of the research to be contradictory as well so how did you manage to navigate your way through that where you say okay well that makes sense and then something else comes along that completely takes the rug from underneath you? I think it really helps that I didn't come to any of the essays with conclusions that I had to kind of 
stick to it. It wasn't like I was writing this book with this grand opener, like, we think we're happy, but actually we're all miserable. And then, you know, had to like meld the evidence constantly to fit a thesis. Like I sort of could let it unfold as it went along. And also, I think that's what happens when you start, as you say, questioning perceived wisdom or myth busting, for, for want of a better word, is so much is just absolute guff. It's just it's just empty rhetoric. Like this idea, for example, you know, we're constantly reading pieces about how we're getting less sleep than we've ever had before. But if you go and actually look at the science at Unfolded that I didn't know was going to be true, mm. it just led to more things that I could then explore. So... I don't think it was ever a bad thing that I discovered something that wasn't going to be what I thought it would be. In trying to perhaps make sure that women are not told what they should be, how did you avoid not falling into that trap yourself? Good question. I mean, I don't know if I have entirely. I wanted it to feel as kind of inclusive and warm and questioning as possible. The title is probably a bit of a misnomer because I don't give an answer. But I guess my primary objective with it was to identify some anxieties or themes in our lives among some people. I don't want it to ever read as, this is what women think, this is what women do. And I think in most of the circumstances, I tried to give kind of lots of different examples. But I just couldn't really believe how narrow, I mean, I'm naive, we're talking about it all the time at the moment, aren't we? Who gets to tell stories and whose stories are told? But, you know, there's there's so much about people like me written about, straight, white, middle-class, married with children, you know, literature on child-free women so often skews between them being childless. And I think I just was really keen to try and encompass as many different views or lived experience as possible. But I I, I don't know if I totally avoided that trap. I hope I have. Well, I guess the, the problematic thing is saying, how do we know we're doing it right? Because you have to understand what does right mean? Well, I think that was the kind of whole point of the title is more like an in-joke, I think, when you've read the book, because there isn't a right life. And it's a a zero-sum game striving for one. What I think there is, is a rightful life. And by that, I mean a life that's right for you, which has been fully informed by the world around you. So what you put into the world and what you get from the world. So I think we are sort of labouring under this false pretense at the moment where ostensibly women have all these choices and they can be anyone they want to be, you know, all these empowered mottos everywhere we go. But the script, I think, feels more narrow than it ever has before. You know, you're either right or wrong, you're winning or you're cancelled. And I think we need to be a little bit better about weighing up our options and about seeing what serves us and what doesn't. You know, not everyone has to be really engaged with the internet. Not everyone has to be on social media. Not everyone has to like shopping. Not everyone has to be really into the experiential economy. You don't have to watch box sets if they don't work for you. Like there are so many things you can opt out of, but there is a pressure that somehow makes women feel like they don't have those choices. Do you feel emancipated in the sense that you're no longer so heavily involved in the world of fashion, which is a kind of neurosis amplifier, isn't it? I didn't so much find it a neurosis amplifier, but I do think that it is a very 
specific industry and it's quite impervious to the outside and it's it's quite insane I mean you know I had some great times doing fashion but fashion is the dominant force and if you write about fashion no one ever really thinks about you in different terms and Mm. I knew that if I wanted to write social commentary or to fully invest in things that weren't fashion then I had to be almost quite brutal and sort of like execute my fashion leg so I did that 18 months ago and in the future I might come back to it but I think for better or for worse we really struggle to think about women who do anything in fashion as being able to do anything else just like so many of the things mentioned in this book fashion is in order for it to work as a business model, it has to persuade you that what you bought from them last year is no longer valid. Hence why I guess I called it a neurosis amplifier, because you're constantly being told, well, that's not cool. You need to be doing this. This is not cool. And there's, I mean, wellness, as you talk about extensively in, in, in the first opening chapter of the book. Again, that's another thing that feeds on your your insecurities, yeah, they both, I wanted the essays to kind of follow on from each other a bit. And they definitely have a lot in common, those two essays, because both subscribe to something which makes me really, really cross, which is this idea of women feeling like they're not enough. Mm. And wellness has come along as something that claims to fix women. And bodies aren't made to be fixed. Bodies are sort of, you know, they're leaky and they're messy and sometimes will feel awful for no reason. And wellness has just blanketed this kind of false perfection, this supremacy of health where you should feel excellent at all times. And that that kind of taps into this idea that you should feel happy at all times, which is, which is equally dangerous. That has never been how progress has been made because otherwise, why would you strive for more? And then I think with, with fashion, it's there's always been, you know, it's always been, oh, well, I'd feel like a whole new woman with a new dress. I mean, you know, that happened I'm sure in the 30s the 40s the 60s what it's just been so amplified now by social media and by the kind of confluence of celebrity and fashion basically this idea that everyone is shoppable (laughs) everyone is just a walking talking advert and you're right I mean the consumer industry the key is in the key is in the name or consumer magazines is they are they were invented to make you consume but we're at a peak now we're at the peakest peak and i think where do we go from here and the truth is a lot of people have to be making a lot less money that's yes. that there's no way around it yes. we need to shop True. less we need to see less retailers and that's that's the only way i see us escaping the pathology because we need to be buying more things secondhand which is a which is the complete opposite to what is being pressed upon young women right now, which is just newness, new, new, new all the time. Now, Pandora, we've got some objects which have inspired your creative process. Now, these include a paperweight and a handwritten book of quotes. Let's start with your first object, which is a newspaper clipping, I believe. Yes, it's sellotaped to my desk and it's a quote by Emily Dickinson that I can't remember when I snipped out maybe a year ago, maybe two years ago, and it ended up being the epigraph in my book. And it says, in this short life that lasts only an hour, how much, how little is within our power. How often do you look at that? Oh, every day. Because I think some people could read that quote and find it depressing. Like, oh, why am I even bothering if I can't Mm. change anything? 
But I find it really comforting, just like I found it comforting when I was researching for the book and I realised that women come up against the same themes in every single generation. It reminds me that there really is only so much within our control and those things within our control are the things that deserve our care and attention. So for me, it's just a kind of reminder to focus and regroup on the stuff that's within my power and relinquish the stuff that's not. Right. Okay, so just worry about the things that you can do something about, uh, as opposed to be worrying about the things that people are telling you you should worry about. Or the things that you kind of have been made to believe you should worry mm. about, because we all exist in worlds now, which is something I think is so dangerous, where we're seeing ourselves through our own eyes, and that, or the world through our own eyes, and then we're also seeing it through a million other people's, because we're just commenting on each other all the time now through through the sort of prism of online. And I think it can be very, very hard to retain conviction and confidence in who you are and what you believe when everything is constantly refracted through the opinions of others. How do you be constructive in a world that demands of you a binary decision? And if you make the wrong decision, then as you pointed out very early on in our chat, you're cancelled. I think this is a really big question at the moment. A lot of journalists I've seen have recently come off social media because they are too scared of saying the wrong thing. You know, it's a very, it's been a very febrile year and, un- and understandably so, but I do feel really worried about how binary things have become because we cannot learn and we cannot progress if we don't allow people to make mistakes. It's a complete, it stalls everything instantly. And I don't know how we've got to a point where it's worse than it's ever been. Yes. Having children for you, in what ways did they change your attitudes towards the world, right? I mean, society does make women particularly feel as though they're constantly making bad choices when it comes to bringing up their children in a way that us men are never made to feel, at least not that I experienced ever. Oh, absolutely. That's why I, you know, I mothering in this book is the one of the first times I've ever written about motherhood. I don't talk about it on the high-low. I don't go on panels. I don't go on podcasts about mothering because I find it, too terrifying for that then to be something that people can pass judgment on as if it's sort of part of my work and they're not part of my work so I so I sort of became quite boundaried about that actually because that is the quagmire isn't it because as soon as you say anything about the way you parent that immediately invites people to say well, I didn't do that. It's, I think you mentioned in the book about epidurals or, you know, having no pain relief whatsoever. Yes, when this when this woman tweeted that she was really proud of herself because she gave birth without an epidural. Brilliant. Good for her. She felt empowered by her birth. She lived to tweet about it. Fabulous. And someone coming along and saying, and, and this is kind of an illustration for a wider point, but someone coming along and saying, well, you're actually shaming everyone that did have epidurals. I didn't feel shamed by one other woman's story. You know, I think this idea that every time a woman tells her story, she's shaming someone else is is really sad. And it does curb women from sharing their stories if it's constantly assumed 
Well, it is constantly assumed. You yeah, know, if one is, woman yeah. goes up, another woman must go down. I think that all the stuff that's written about motherhood was about white middle-class mothers. Mm. You know, there's a whole wealth of literature for women like me. And I recently interviewed Candice Brathwaite for The Hilo, and she has written the first book about black motherhood, which is crazy. Wow. How is it 2020 and she's written the first book about black motherhood? And it's something Mickey Kendall talks about in Hood Feminism. She says, you know, there is this absolute myth or understanding that if you are poor and not white, you are less of a parent. And that was something she felt was present in every doctor's appointment when they asked where the husband was. And if her husband was there, they would talk to him. He was white and she's black. And every single illustration of parenthood for her reflected this truth. Black women are and more likely to die in childbirth than white women in this times, country. Yeah, Five times yeah. more likely. Why aren't we talking about that more? Why aren't we looking at health within... As you say, why aren't we looking at it intersectionally? And that's absolutely not to say, and I don't think either of us are suggesting that white mothers can't encounter problems, can't have no, mental health difficulties, not. can't have difficult births. But, you know, I am, and this was again why it was so important to get other voices in the book, I am the demographic that has the loudest voice and that is written about the most. So I wanted to see how, how can how can I get get in other voices as well? Because it's it's so important if if you have that platform to do that. Have you always been conscious of that, Pandora, of that place that you have in society that puts you in a different place to other women? Not enough. Not not 10 years ago, like I do now. And I am embarrassed about that, but that's the truth. I mean, I knew I was privileged, but I don't think I understood the ways in which it impacted women with different life experience or from different communities in the way that I do now. I don't think we talked about it like we do now. And that's that's no excuse. I, you know, I was in my 20s. I should have realised that. I, I think I thought I did. But I think maybe what, what a lot of us are realising now is we didn't know or do nearly enough. Let's get on to your next object. And it is a paperweight. Why this? Well, I do love this paperweight, but I also am not a particularly talismanic person and was forced to perhaps attach <laughs> a certain amount of weight quite literally to talismans at your request Nahal but I do I am I am very fond of this paperweight it was given to me by my by my dad and it's got a picture of me and my daughter in it but I do love it because I just look at it and I suppose it's like the way if you have a picture a photograph of your child on your desk you just look at it and it just I know it sounds really saccharine but you just look it doesn't. at it, no, look, it doesn't. And, and 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 it reminds you you know what matters and the good stuff and she looks very happy in it and I look happy so it's just like a really nice reminder to have now your next object is another present from your father to your children yes my dad has funnily enough three out of the four objects I've chosen oh. relate to my father which is very interesting your mum's going to be very upset when she hears this podcast if she listens yes to it. it's, it's that's strange how that's um that's panned out my dad does a really lovely thing when when his godchildren or his grandchildren are born of buying them and old books Good. old lovely books he you know has a has a couple of kind of 
ancient old bookseller friends and they'll say to him, oh, I dug up The Little Mermaid from 1897. Do you want it? And he'll go, yes, that would be that would be just the ticket for my new granddaughter. And it's just the loveliest thing that he, he did. He, yeah, he gave one to my daughter and he gave me Shakespeare's Lamb's Tales. Have I got that right? Lamb's Shakespeare Tales. Lamb's Tales from Shakespeare? <laughs> An 1885 edition. Apparently. We'll get there in the end, Pandora. But yes, exactly. That's that's the one he gave me. Um, and it is, it's really beautiful. And I just, as I get older, as I'm sure you have as well, these things, and as our parents get older, if, if you know, if you're lucky enough for your parents mm. to still be alive as I am, then these things just take on such significance. And I don't even, I don't even read the books he gave us because I eat a lot when I read and I'm just so worried about soiling the pages. So they are, they are, <laughs> they're precious on, on, on a high up shelf where no sticky fingers, mine included, can, can get to them. And he wrote to reflect your love and skill with the English language. I mean, you've been a voracious reader for many years, haven't you? Yes, I've all I, ever since I was absolutely tiny. When I was like eight, I used to get fourteen books out of the library a week because that was the maximum. And yeah, I'd read all night. I was very lucky that my mum would always. I had a set bedtime, but she would never turn my light out because otherwise I'd just go read in the bathroom. So there was there was really no point. So reading has always been something that I've been allowed to indulge in as much as possible, and it's just, oh, it's, yeah, it's just been the best escape. I, I am who I am because I read so much when I was little, I think. And then when you started to write yourself as a journalist, have you ever fallen out of love with writing? I have never fallen out of love with writing. I've definitely lost confidence quite a lot. Why? How? I think at times I have struggled to locate exactly what I wanted to write about. And I think that's why I found writing the essays very freeing because I didn't have a word count like you do on a magazine or a newspaper. I don't typically write long read journalism. So I would always have a word count of like 1,200, which, you know, made me feel like I couldn't really explore. And also I felt like I was quite limited in terms of what I could write about. There are so many brilliant journalists. So sometimes I would feel a bit like, well, what can I offer that someone else wouldn't be better at doing? And I think the, the, but kind of became a safe place for me really to be able to explore whatever I wanted to at length. Was any of it, I don't know if it's snobbery is the right word, but oh, she's a fashion journalist. She does that. Was any of it that? I'm sure that could have come into it. I have been constantly surprised over my years at the ways in which people can diminish one another based on not very much information. I found it <laughs> yeah. very interesting when we launched that the high Social media was invented. <laughs> well, quite. And I found it really interesting when we started the high and people assumed it was just quite waffly and fluffy. And it's a lot of things, but it's not that. And there was always that assumption. So I think, yes, I'm sure there was maybe a bit of that. But also, to be fair, I didn't have tons and, you know, I don't have tons of experience of writing long read journalism. There's no reason why an editor should take a punt on me. And so I think I'm very lucky that I was able to go away and do that in a book instead to sort of have maybe, yeah, the freedom to do that. How did writing this book add to your life? Apart from the advance and the fact that you, you managed to drink lots of water. and 
I really enjoyed not existing in a kind of instant feedback loop because all the other work I do is is fairly instant. You know, you put out a podcast and you get feedback on that immediately. You write a piece of journalism, you get feedback. And it can be quite hard to disentangle how much of your future work is informed by that feedback. Whereas writing a book, you get to go away for an extended period of time. And aside from your editors, no one else has input. No one else shapes that material. And I think that for me, that was enormously freeing because I don't necessarily feel that freedom in my day-to-day job. Okay, Pandora, let's go to your final object now. And it's a handwritten leather book of quotes that you kept during your teenage years. Wow. Yes, it pops up in one of the essays, The Authentic Lie. It's so pretentious. <laughs> Hold on, I've got it behind me. It's it's just the mix of it's the mix of quotes which is so ridiculous. So you've got Tony Blair followed by John Milton. Classic, classic pairing. Um, yeah, Sha- Sharon Stone's in here. Um, Holden Caulfield, obviously. Everyone's a Jim Morrison. teenager. I don't know if I've got any Oscar Wilde. I mean, he's Oscar got, Wilde, of course. Here you go. Here's one that I found charming, age 15. Only ugly people need manners. Beautiful people can get away with anything. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Sadly true, unfortunately. I was wondering, do you think that is... Oh, my God, here's my one from Sharon Stone. <laughs> Women might be able to fake orgasms, but men can fake whole relationships. <laughs> what? And you were how old when you had this? 15. Good grief. Wow. <laughs> and wait a minute, how were you collecting these? I was just writing them down when I'd read them. There's a lot of Milan Kundera because I was obsessed with him as a teenager. I mean, I still, I still think he's kind of wonderful. I really should have kept it kept it up. I'm not really sure how old I was when I forgot about it. Well, there, there are 26 pages of notes, as you well know, in how do we know we're doing it. So you're still kind of doing it? That's true. That's true. I'm still, I, I'm still completely porous and much more interested in the momentous words of others. Do you remember what your favourite quote is from your leather-bound book of quotes? <laughs> Sorry, I literally just snorted there. Um, this is quite This is quite a nice one, anonymous. If you find you're constantly failing, why not change your goals? Wow. That's it's got made... PowerPoint written all over it, that has. OK, hey, I, I know, I thought you were about to be rude about that and I realised as I was reading it <laughs> that it was a little bit trite. OK, what about this one then? Go on. Whatever you may be sure of, be sure of this, that you are dreadfully like other people. James Russell Lau. I think that's quite nice because we live in the absolute age of individualism where everyone has to be different and unique and most of us are pretty damn similar. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Even you, Nahal, bad luck. Oh, yeah, I'm totally similar, yeah. Just, Just your average Essex boy of Sri Lankan heritage. Let's go to the opening of your book. Uh, where you are discussing the paradox of choice that many millennials face. Let's hear a clip from the audiobook now. As a generation, we've been rushing towards this moment since we could walk. We grew up alongside the positive psychology movement of the 90s, also known as the study of the good life, telling us that the key to happiness lies within. We were raised by boomer parents and the constant reminder that, unlike them, we have so much choice. We were safe in the knowledge the ceiling had been broken and that we had all the tools at our disposal. We can be whoever we want to be. And yet, 
there is a widespread feeling of restlessness among millennial women. Like something is not quite adding up. Like we might be getting life wrong. The paradox of choice is a theory coined by the psychologist Barry Schwartz to describe how choice has become just as much a straitjacket as a liberation. The official dogma of all Western industrial societies runs like this, he says. The more choice people have, the more freedom they have. And the more freedom they have, the more welfare they have. Having no choice is unbearable, he writes. But having too much choice can be dizzying, especially when it's over things that shouldn't matter. No one's life was ever improved by 175 different salad dressings or scrolling through 88 pages of black dresses. That was How Do We Know We're Doing It Right, written and read by my guest, Pandora Sykes. It is available to buy and download now. There is a link in the programme notes of this episode. And whilst we're here, do remember to rate, comment and subscribe to the Penguin Podcast. Please let us know what you think. Very important feedback loop we want to be in. You can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. Pandora, what a pleasure it's been hanging out with you. Thank you, Nahal. I wish we could do it in person, but this has been... A very lovely Monday evening. Maybe your next book can be your published quotes from your teenage years. Well, you'd can... be very rude about it. I wouldn't. I'd give it an amazing <laughs> review. I'd just say how dreadfully normal I am compared to everybody else. Take care, Pandora. Thanks, Nahal. Survive and thrive in uncertain times by listening to the insights and inspirational ideas of world-leading experts on staying calm, focused and in control. The Here and Now is an original audiobook featuring contributions from 10 authors that will help you to master the difficult art of living in the moment. The audiobook includes an essay on sleep by Dr Amir Khan, an audio workout from Chloe Maidley and an essay on food by Rukmini Ayer, author of the Roasting Tin series. Cooking and being grounded in the present moment is an escape from everyday life. And for me, it's at the same time an unconscious connection into my own roots, those of my parents, those of tables past. It's preparation for tables to come. The Here and Now is available to download now as an audiobook from Audible, Apple Books and all audiobook retailers.